Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Wilkin Brutus. A newly elected school board member in Broward County is sparking public outrage after attending an anti-LGBTQ rally alongside groups such as the Proud Boys. WLRN reporters discuss the fallout. Also, South Florida is experiencing a surge in three dangerous respiratory viruses that are all spreading at the same time. Some experts are now calling it a triple-demic. What you should know before confirming your holiday plans. Finally, a journalist joins WLRN as the new local government accountability reporter. He gives us insight on what government accountability means for the growing communities in Miami-Dade County. All of that today on the South Florida Roundup, after the news. I'm Wilkin Brutus, and welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Miami is known as much for its warm weather as its unconventional politics and headline-making political scandals. Keeping up with all of it can be just like a full-time job. In fact, it's the job of WLRN's new local government accountability reporter, Joshua Sabatis. Joshua, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Your track record is covering the city of Miami, but Miami is much bigger than that, right? Oh, yeah. I mean... Miami-Dade County is so big. I mean, there's so many municipalities and little towns that people outside of those towns kind of forget about. And a lot of them get undercovered. You know, they're not um, reported on well enough. And to the north, to the west, and to the south of the city of Miami. So I'm really looking forward to covering some of those lesser lesser known or lesser reported places. Absolutely. And, and so are we. Uh, you're WLRN's new local government accountability reporter, and you'll be working alongside reporter and host Danny Rivero. Uh, what sort of stories do you look forward to covering? Um, I'm just really looking forward to covering um, the deep investigative stuff, because that's, that's my goal is to be an investigative reporter. We're starting up a new investigative reporting team. So I'm looking forward to the longer projects, the deep dives into documents and court records and budgets, and um, really bringing out the stories that are hidden, but that mean uh, so much in terms of impact in Miami. You hear the term investigative reporter, but government accountability? Uh, What are you really looking at? Right. So government accountability Um, I think that kind of differs from the old-fashioned government reporter who is maybe just covering meetings, like this is what happened at today's meeting. Um, But accountability is, is, you know, a large part of what journalism uh, is about, is holding those in power to account, you know, giving voice to the voiceless and making sure that the people who make the decisions are doing so for the people. And so the things that I'm really looking for are how do policies impact people once they hit the pavement? And we're keeping you busy (laughs) and you just hit the ground running. What are you working on right now? Yeah, so I'm working. I have a couple of irons in the fire working on a couple of things um, and that run the gamut from, you know, um, police accountability within the city of Miami. Um, I'm also doing a a little things about elections, kind of like looking back on some election stuff um, and digging into some um, financial records uh, that I think will turn out to be a little interesting. Yeah. Uh, You recently worked on a story surrounding a commission seat vacancy in Miami's District 2, which includes Coconut Grove and surrounding areas. Uh, Is the commission picking a replacement? Yeah. So at it can go one of two ways. Either so, Ken Russell is the current District Two Commissioner, and he 
he ran for federal office. He was unsuccessful in his bid, but under Florida's resign to run law, he had to resign in order to run for office, resign from his current office. So he his resignation is effective January 3rd. The remaining four city of Miami commissioners have uh, 10 days to appoint someone, which they just kind of select by a three, uh, three-person majority who they want to replace him. If they don't want to do that or they fail to reach that three-person consensus, it's going to go to a special election. A special election. Wow. And how much would a special election cost? (laughs) Yeah. So according to the city clerk, um, the high-end estimate for a special election, and that's with, you know, the maximum amount of uh, early voting sites, maximum amount of early voting days, um, it's going to cost about $330,000. That's the high-end estimate. They don't have a, a low-end estimate, but 330000 is the number they gave. This isn't, this isn't cheap, obviously, uh, and residents probably feel the same way. What, what are residents and community leaders saying? So the community leaders in Coconut Grove that I spoke to, and um, Coconut Grove is often seen as kind of the political heart of District 2. That's where, you know, has the most voter turnout. A lot of people are really engaged. The leaders there actually say, yeah, it's expensive, but it's worth doing because we want a say in the process. We want a leader that we can pick and that has our best interests in mind and not somebody that the other commissioners just kind of choose. Um, this person will only, whoever gets put into the seat will only serve until November of next year. So it's a short term. Um, but these leaders say it doesn't matter. They want to be able to pick and the city should be able to foot the bill. And what would be the timeline for the special election? So uh, they have between 38 and 45 days after the end of that 10-day period. So after January 13th, the city has to put on a special election between 38 and 45 days um, after that period. And that's according to the city charter. So, um, And that accounts for, you know, putting the ballot out, giving enough time for candidates to come in and introduce themselves and file. So that's that's sort of the timeline. And this is somewhat of a transparent way of doing things uh, for folks who may not get used to a special election, would you say? Yeah, I would say this is a way that, um, you know, the candidates can advertise themselves and campaign, admittedly a much shorter period of time. But uh, the election would only be for people in District 2, not the rest of the city. And so they'd get to meet their candidates and say, "Okay, I think this person is the one that I want the most. If it was an appointment, then that's really up to the will of the commissioners. The public will get to comment, but the commissioners would ultimately decide who gets picked. Of course, this is all new at this very moment. Are there any potential candidates so far? So, yeah, uh, at this point, uh, the last I checked, there are nine people. Um, who have put in their hats. They've just basically submitted their resumes to the city clerk to say, um, I'm interested in this seat uh, and if you want to appoint me. So the commissioners can look at the resumes and decide, I want this person. But uh, I called all of them and none of them said that uh, they, most of them said they hadn't even looked over the resumes yet. They're too busy with the holidays. So they haven't had a chance to look. Yeah, I can only imagine. Uh, and again, you're, you're, you're knee deep into everything right now. Uh, local politics are never boring, boring, but it can at times be a little wonky. How do you keep it interesting for yourself, listeners and readers? Well, in Miami, nothing's ever boring, man. You know, uh, even even the wonky stuff, I think, is really interesting just because of what a what a wacky place we live in. Um, so but I really try and fo- like laser focus on how this is going to affect 
people on the ground. How is this going to affect people's day to day? People don't care about this agenda or like this jargon, this political jargon. They want to know how is this going to affect me tomorrow? And that's what I try and keep it focused on. Joshua Ceballos is WLRN's new local government accountability reporter. Joshua, thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Still to come, a Broward County school board member sparks controversy by welcoming support from several groups, including the Proud Boys. You're listening to a special pledge edition of the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. A newly elected school board member in Broward County is facing criticism from two fellow board members, LGBTQ supporters, and civil rights groups after posting a statement on Facebook saying she welcomes support from all groups, including the Proud Boys. Brenda Pham's statement came days after she attended an anti-LGBTQ rally in Fort Lauderdale. WLRN's education reporter Kate Payne and Broward County reporter Gerard Albert III wrote about the rally and the fallout this week. Thanks for joining us, Kate and Gerard. Thanks for having us. Is Gerard Thanks, still here? Hey, Gerard. Thanks, Morgan. Kate, uh, let's, let's start with you. Uh, elected officials and activists are quite outraged at newly elected Broward County Commissioner Brenda Pham for school attending this or school board member yeah. my apologies <laughs> uh, for attending this rally who planned it and where was the rally held so this event was held in fort lauderdale beach at las olas boulevard and a1a um, it's a, a busy popular spot there and the event was put on by the miami chapter of moms for liberty the group florida fathers for freedom and a group called gays against groomers gays against groomers and does the actual location have any significance in terms of where the rally was actually held yes yeah, so it's it's a popular busy spot in town it's a very visible location it's also an area where pride fort lauderdale hosts events and parades so they were pretty direct about and specific about where they wanted this rally to be held essentially um what made this anti-lgbtq rally um uh, an anti-LGBTQ rally. Uh, what were what were the signs that were held? Uh, were there chants? So the some of the promotional materials for this event depicted adults shielding kids from a rainbow. That's an internationally recognized symbol of the LGBTQ community. Uh, the event, you know, called on attendees to protest gender affirming care and other transgender issues. And at the rally, there was a focus on, quote unquote, grooming, which is a term that's been broadly used to insult supporters of LGBTQ people and conversations that touch on issues of gender identity and, and sexual orientation. And uh, some of the organizers that put on this event, you know, they attend uh, local school board meetings regularly and, and have worked to oppose LGBTQ inclusive education and and to broadly prevent discussions about queer identity in schools. Right. And, and take us to the scene. From what I understand, the far right group, the Proud Boys, were also in attendance. Does she have any connections to this far right extremist group? So there were members of, of the Proud Boys there in uniform. Uh, they've been showing up at local school board meetings in Miami-Dade in, in recent months as well. Um, one of the organizers at the event on Saturday told me that the Proud Boys were there as security. Um, I'm not aware of a connection with FAM and the Proud Boys, but um, the group has aligned itself with, with Moms for Liberty and other parental rights activists who are active in, in school board uh, politics. I see. And Brenda didn't just attend the event. She actually spoke at the event. Uh, what was her message? Yeah, she was one of the, the feature spe featured speakers, and she warned attendees about groomers. 
um, and the risks of sexual abuse and sex trafficking. Uh, of, of course, sexual abuse is a very real problem in South Florida. Um, but again, this this term groomers has become something of a conservative buzzword uh, used against um, people who, who support LGBTQ rights. Um, and it, it plays into a, a long history of false claims against LGBTQ people uh, that they're more likely to abuse kids. There's experts say no evidence that that is true. And what was the response like from the crowd when Brenda Pham uh, spoke at this event? She got a pretty warm reception. Uh, they seemed to, to be excited to have her. Um, and it was a sense of, you know, now they have someone on the school board who will represent them and, and focus on their priorities. Right. Uh, I'm Wilkin Brutus. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We are talking about the recent anti-LGBTQ rally in Fort Lauderdale with WLRN reporters Gerard Albert III and Kate Payne. Gerard, are you still there? Yes, yes. Uh, of course, it's important to follow the money and see who was involved in hosting these types of political rallies. In regards to the people who hosted the event, what were they advocating? It's like Kate Payne said, uh, there's a there's a long list, but um, what they say is the they're against the sexualization, indoctrination, and medication, which means uh, gender affirming care for, for trans kids of, of children. Um, but really, the, the group held up signs that were anti-trans, had anti-trans messaging. There are only two genders, things like that. You weren't bo- born in the wrong body. Um, and, and they claim to want to protect children, but um, you know they, they don't seem to care about the children that they are hurting with that homophobic messaging. Yeah. And, and tell us about FAM. She was elected in November. Was it a close race? Uh, what is her professional background? Yeah, Fam's victory was a little bit of a surprise, especially in uh, heavily Democratic Broward. She won by about 2,000 votes. She's a lawyer and a part-time flight attendant from Davie. And uh, she ran kind of on on this on these conservative talking points that are being seen nationally in school board races, that, that students are being indoctrinated, that they need to be saved, things like that. Yeah. And, and were there any conspiracy theories that were thrown around at this particular event? I think Kate touched on it that uh, the the biggest thing that protest insinuated was that gay people are more likely to be groomers and that talking to students about sexual education will lead to them being groomed, uh, which really, it, when you take it out of the context that um, you know conservative people are, are, are kind of throwing it out in, means to be manipulated, to manipulate children into sexual abuse. Um, but we know that this is wrong. We know that uh, it's actually the opposite. Most people that are abused um, are, are abused by straight men and that teaching children about sex in the appropriate way can help them identify abuse in their own lives or in their friends' lives. You make a great point. Some of those controversies I've seen in certain uh, con- conspiratorial groups out there, such as QAnon, uh, where there was, were some of those conspiracy theories uh, and those adherents of QAnon present at that event. Yes, and 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 that's what they're rooted in, and it's a they're they're national talking points that can just be repeated um, over and over again. Yeah, and, and Kate, did you and Gerard actually reach out to Fam for for comment? Yeah, we we reached out to her with interview requests, and she did not respond to us. Right. Many protesters claim 
people in the LGBTQ community are, quote, grooming children, as you mentioned, Kate. Um, how are advocates for the LGBTQ community responding to this type of rhetoric? Yeah, so the response from elected officials, from LGBTQ advocates, has been to decry this event uh, and, and to harshly criticize FAM for participating um, you know, in her, her new capacity as, as, as an elected school board member. Um, you know, these advocates are saying this kind of rhetoric is harmful, that it plays into longstanding false claims about LGBTQ people. Um, they've also pointed out there's a lot of resonance with the anti-queer campaigns of Anita Bryant in the 1970s, who, you know, was a, a singer and activist who was instrumental in overturning legal protections for LGBTQ people in Miami-Dade County with a lot of similar messaging about trying to keep um, the acknowledgement of, of queer people out of public schools. Um, and, you know, Bryant was successful in the short term, but activists, you know, ultimately say she helped galvanize and, and organize a movement for LGBTQ rights. And, and of course, we're responding and talking about the outrage about this event. Um, were there any uh, fans, fellow school board members, um, have any of them spoken up about this? Spoken up in response to FAM's comments and her appearance at this event? I am not aware. I may have missed it, um, but... I'm not sure. Yeah, no worries. Uh, I can chime in. Two of them uh, told the Sun Sentinel that they were, um, you know, in, in so many words, appalled at her appearance there and that she should not have been there. And, and, and Gerard, um, and you both can, can tackle this as well. Gerard, uh, is it fueling hate crimes, these types of open, controversial events? You know, it's, it's hard to make that direct connection, um, but that's what activists say and, and also the the rhetoric that is repeated at these events um, definitely doesn't help and it doesn't make children who are gay or part of the LGBTQ community feel safer in any way. And, and Kate, I can direct a question to you as well. Most importantly for students who belong to the LGBTQ community throughout South Florida, uh, how does it affect them personally? Yeah, there are a number of student activists who have been really involved going to school board meetings, going to protests, um, and it's a lot for them to shoulder. Um, but they say that it's it's vital that they push back, that they defend their rights. You know, so many have stories of having a trusted teacher who helped them be themselves, helped create a safe environment so that they knew they were not alone and how critical that is for so many LGBTQ young people who we know sadly are, are more likely to attempt suicide. But having that trusted adult, having a safe environment can make a huge difference for them. And, and of course, there's a lot of ideological perspectives that are being shared at this LGBTQ, anti-LGBTQ event. Was FAM appointed by DeSantis? Is there a, a direct political perspective coming out of this? She was elected by the voters of Broward County within her district, um, but she does fit into, you know, her messaging, her platform fits into this broader um, movement we've seen with school board candidates in Florida and, and in other places across the country of, you know, advocating for quote unquote parental rights and, and going after uh, curriculum they don't agree with and and. Uh, restricting how, how identity and, and race are talked about in schools. And of course, you and Gerard have your eyes on what's going on right now. Gerard, uh, there's been so much upheaval on the Broward School Board. What will FAM do to help or hurt uh, her presence there? You know, it's it's yet to be seen. I mean, there's 
like you said, so much else going on with the school board, with uh, the fired superintendent, the search for a new superintendent. And now um, next week, there's going to be um, discussion of bringing back the old superintendents, uh, Vicki Cartwright. So um, really, it, I, I don't know if they'll bring it up at, ne at the next meeting. We'll be there to look at it. Um, also, I wanted to say that Sarah Leonardi and Nora Rupert were the two school board members who talked to the Sun Sentinel and um, kind of decried Brenda Pham's attendance at the rally. Thanks for clarifying that. Kate Payne is WLRN's education reporter, and Gerard Albert III is WLRN's Broward County reporter. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank really, you. Really appreciate it. Still to come, rising cases of the flu, COVID-19, and RSV. We'll talk to an infectious disease specialist about ways to stay safe. A special pledged edition of the South Florida Roundup continues on WLRN. You may see more people reaching for tissues or covering a cough this weekend. According to the state health department, the number of COVID-19 cases is increasing in Florida. So is the number of people with influenza. A number of pedi pediatricians in South Florida are also experiencing a surge in respiratory syncytial virus, better known as RSV. And some, some health experts are now calling it a triple-demic. Do you have any questions about flu, RSV, or COVID-19? Call us now at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. With Christmas just two weeks away, what should South Floridians know about holiday get-togethers? Joining us now is Dr. Carla, Carla McWilliams. Tonight. She's the chief infectious diseases uh, for Cleveland Clinic Western Hospital. Dr. McWilliams, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start with influenza, or what we commonly call commonly call the flu. The State Departments of the State Department of Health says cases are increasing in Miami-Dade and Broward counties. Numbers remain about the same in Palm Beach. Why are we seeing a, a higher than normal number of people with the flu? Well, I think, you know, some of this is reflective of the fact that we're not universally masking anymore um, and we're out and about and gathering and respiratory illnesses do spread easily from person to person in this fashion. You know, over the COVID-19 pandemic, many of us were indoors and when we did go outdoors, we were wearing masks universally so that led to a more mild flu season in prior years. And so COVID cases are slightly higher week to week. We know it's nowhere near levels from uh, two years ago or even last year with the Omicron variant. Uh, why is it that? Why is that? And how concerned should people be about COVID this year? Well, we've probably moved to a stage in the pandemic where there is a very high level of population or um, vaccine-induced immunity, either from natural infection or vaccinations. Um, so some of that partial immunity may carry over and lead to relatively mild or asymptomatic illnesses. Thankfully, even though cases are slightly up, we are not seeing that translate to an increase in hospitalizations like we were earlier in the pandemic. So that's very good news. Yeah. And Dr. McWilliams, a lot of my friends are contemplating on whether they should continue vaccination efforts. How does being vaccinated, being vaccinated help? Uh, how many vaccines should people have now to be fully protected? 
Yeah. Um, so the number of vaccines really depends on the type of vaccine that's been received. I would um, suggest to the listeners that if they're not sure if they are fully vaccinated or not to talk to their healthcare provider or pharmacy, because the calculation, to be perfectly honest, is a little bit complicated. But all that being said, I think we need to think about COVID now a little bit similar to how we think about the flu. Um, the virus does evolve and mutate and change. And with that, our vaccines need to change slightly in order to provide immunity from reinfection with new circulating variants. Yeah. And, and children's hospitals in South Florida are also seeing an increase in RSV cases Please explain what RSV RSV is and how concerned you think parents should be. Um, RSV stands for respiratory syncytial virus. Um, prior to the COVID-19 pandemic um, in adults, actually, this was the second most common cause of hospital-related uh, respiratory illness behind influenza. So respiratory syncytial virus can cause um, severe disease in adults, but it's more known for severe lower respiratory tract disease in the very young, especially children. And what that means is, you know, very young children, um, especially under the age of two, and particularly in the newborn and infant period, can have um, infection of the lower airways and it can lead to wheezing or um, difficulty breathing. Unfortunately, there is no vaccine currently available for RSV, though there are some in clinical trials that potentially look prosperous in the future. So the best way to prevent the spread of RSV, very similar to the way we prevent the spread of other respiratory viruses, is kind of just those normal common sense things. You know, if you don't feel well or feel like you're coming down with something, don't go out with all of your friends um, and and share uh, germs with others. Right. Make make sure you make the necessary precautions. Uh, mm-hmm. Dr. McWilliams, definitely stay with us. I'm Wilkin Brutus. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Call us now, 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Uh, Dr. McWilliams, we're three years into this stubborn pandemic that seems to bring new surprises at any given moment. Uh, would you describe this surge in respiratory infections as a triple demic? Is, is that an accurate term to describe what's going on right now? Well, I think the concern was that um, all of these viruses would sort of peak at the same time and lead to overwhelming our healthcare systems. You know, fortunately, that doesn't really seem to be the case. Um, it does seem like RSV has already peaked and is on the decline, whereas um, influenza cases are um, uptrending right now and relatively high. So um, that was the main concern behind the quote, uh, triple-demic that was being spoken of. But remember, you know, even prior to COVID-19, the respiratory viral season was always in the fall and winter. For the most part. For the most part, right. And, and amid the increase in these viruses, there's now a shortage of some medicines used to treat them, uh, namely amoxicillin and children's Tylenol. How long do you think it will last? 
Um, I honestly don't know the answer to that question. Um, the one thing that I would say, though, is for flu and for COVID, um, for those who are at risk or fall into a category of risk for more severe disease, we do have very good available therapies now. You know, for flu, we have Tamiflu. For COVID, we have two oral medications, um, Paxlovid and Molnupiravir. So for individuals who really are at risk of um, severe disease, it's important to talk to your healthcare provider early because there really is a window of opportunity to start those medicines. And speaking of Tamiflu, are you seeing a shortage of Tamiflu as well or no? No, I have not heard of that. Yeah. We, we are two weeks away from Christmas, and a lot of us are quite excited about that. <laughs> Just left Thanksgiving. Some of us are probably still full. Um, should people alter their holiday plans amid this uptick in respiratory viruses? Um not necessarily. I think we need to just be smart, right? So if someone in the family is is not feeling well or is feeling like they're coming down with something, you know, don't go to the big family dinner. Um, or if you do go, make sure, you know, you stay far away from any everyone and, and wear a mask um, as the best protection for others. So I think we need to just employ those strategies um, to protect those who are around us. And that's a, that's a really good point. I'd also like to ask, uh, is there any new research or data on Paxlovid's, quote, rebound effect at all? Any new research? There is some research looking at this. Um, I would say it's still an area of investigation. My most important message, I think, for the listeners is that it's a very effective medication. It's as good as the monoclonal antibodies. And unfortunately, with the new circulating variants, we know that the monoclonal antibodies we were using are no longer effective. So when you look at them sort of head to head, the data on the efficacy is very, very, very similar. So it's a very effective medicine. And even in those cases of quote unquote rebound, we have not seen that translate to hospitalizations or anything of that sort. So I would still strongly encourage people to talk to their providers about it. Yeah. And and there's still a lot of pandemic fatigue right now. You mentioned wearing masks, uh, but you don't see a lot of them in airports or in malls. Uh, what are your thoughts about mask wearing at this at this point in time? Well, um, it's a complex issue. I do think that for folks who um, are significantly at risk of uh, more severe disease, even when fully vaccinated, that we need to be wise, right? So wearing a mask, if you're going to a crowded indoor space and you don't know what everyone's status is, is probably a good idea. If you just had an organ transplant or, you know, you're on chemotherapy as a means to protect yourself. Um, are you, when you're seeing patients, uh, do you see resistance to mask wearing? Is there any particular type of fear that uh, patients are describing uh, when you advocate for wearing masks? Um, I think it depends on who you ask. Different folks have different opinions. The one thing that I can say as a medical professional is that pre-pandemic, we wore masks for years when we were around um, individuals who were sick. Obviously, as a healthcare provider myself, I routinely take care of people who are sick. And um, they are effective if it is the right mask and worn correctly.
Dr. Carla McWilliams is the Chief of Infectious Diseases for Cleveland Clinic Western Hospital. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your expertise. Thank you for having me. Helping us sign off this week are some members of the Miami Heat's Golden Oldies, Samuel McWoodson, Jan Cahill, Mary Ellen, and Kim Kampf. They were kind enough to record it last night at last night's game. Thanks for listening to the South Florida Roundup. That'll do it for the show today. The South Florida Roundup was produced by Denise Royal. WLRN's engagement editor is Katie Lepree Cohen. Mateo Sanchez is WLRN's digital editor. The newsroom's interim managing editor is Katie Munoz. Jessica Bakeman is WLRN's senior editor for news. WLRN's vice president of radio and the show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Mertz. Richard Eves answers the phone. Thanks for calling and listening. And remember, stay hydrated.